0: Yeah, so this is an excellent question about the use of uh, proteasome inhibitors as a primary therapy choice for patients with, um, you know, with amyloidosis. And so typically, um, you know, your goal in these patients is to recognize that even a little bit of light chain production is going to be bad for the patient. And uh, we've been disappointed with ibrutinib in this setting where we've seen continued production of light chains and lack of, uh, even though we get hematological response, we have continued um, amyloidotic protein production, um, and so as a result, we've looked at alternative choices. Both bendamustine as well as proteasome inhibitors are effective uh, in amyloidosis, AL amyloidosis. We've prioritized proteasome inhibitors only because the experience is much greater um, in uh, in Waldenstrom's disease with proteasome inhibitors in this particular setting. I think it's also important to recognize that if the patient is fit, one should think about uh, transplanting these patients. Auto-transplant should be considered in the patient with symptomatic amyloidosis since your goal really is uh, long-term, you know, suppression of those toxic clones.
1: Steve, do you want to comment on bortezomib versus carlfilzomib versus exazomib?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Rick. You know, we... um, We've, you know, tried to avoid as much as possible the use of bortezomib because of the um, high rates of neuropathy, major neuropathy, and discontinuation. Um, Carfilzomib has been very active. Um, We certainly are concerned about the small um, chance of cardiomyopathy in this uh, setting, but it has shown um, very high rates of um, response and even good progression-free survival. But bortezomib actually, when you look at our PFS data, actually is much better than even carfilzomib and even uh, ixazomib. We've seen less neuropathy with carfilzomib and ixazomib, but I'm I'm really stunned by how impressive um, long-term PFS data continues to show with uh, bortezomib. And so uh, weekly dosing um, is preferable. Um, I would avoid twice-a-week dosing with uh, bortezomib because we see just too much neuropathy. Um, but as I said, in the setting of uh, this disease, we've seen better progression-free survival. There's no head-on data, though, so one has to take that you know, into account.
1: Subcutaneous or intravenous?
0: Subcutaneous preferably, although there are people who um, will show um, very poor response to subcutaneous that you can salvage with intravenous. So I think it's reasonable to start with sub-Q. And uh, if you're getting traction, great. If not, please consider intravenous uh, switching over to intravenous
1: dosing. Dr. Coleman, uh, uh, Steve, what is the role of the Toll-like receptors with the mutant mid88? Is there any role for it, or is it just activated on its own? Yeah,
0: no, that's a great question. Uh, More so, you still need the Toll receptor as an anchor. The Toll receptors um, are, you know, pivotal for 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 being an anchorage point, and probably t- uh, TLR7 and TLR9. Are important. Lou Stout has done some very nice work where he, you know, um, ended up um, knocking down TLR7 and TLR9 to recognize that mid88 function could be compromised. But you don't need signaling anymore by toll receptors to help enable mid88 signaling. The um, acquisition of the mutation allows for self assembly of mid88. And it's that self assembly and the ability to recruit BTK into the complex that allows for the uh, NF kappa B related signaling. But you still require that anchor. It's almost, think of it as almost a chandelier where, you know, the lights get turned on, you know, because of the mutation, but you still need something to keep it hung on the ceiling to cause the signaling cascades
1: to occur. Do you know whether they're using CXCR4 antagonist uh, in the treatment of CLL?
0: Well, you know, there, I think this is actually an area for us that is worthy of exploration because Nick Gerasi has done some very nice work, you know, implicating uh, overexpression of CXCR4 with ibrutinib resistance. And I think this is also, you know, perhaps what we will learn from these studies is the opportunity to export, you know, CXCR4 antagonists to even CLL. In Waldenstrom's, it's very interesting. If you don't have the mutation, what you see conversely in, in the patients that don't have it is that they tend to overexpress CXCR4, so there may be still a CXCR4 issue there, except that it's overexpression as opposed to um, an activating mutation.
1: And just one brief commentary: uh, I do agree that high dose and, and Bruvica gets, gets you across the blood-brain barrier, and it's good for big Neal. But very often with these CNS symptoms, people are given high dose steroids, and that's a surefire prescription for Aspergillus. I think the NIH got the NCI got themselves burned with that, and I just want to put out a warning to everyone who plans to use this for being neo.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good statement. So avoid uh, steroids with uh, ibrutinib use. I agree with that. We have not seen. I mean, we've done, we've been, we've cared for a lot of people with Waldenstrom with ibrutinib. We have not seen aspergillosis except in one case, and that patient was also on steroids uh, when we when he presented to us. So. You know, I I completely agree with you, Mort.
1: Dr. Allen? Uh, Thanks, Thanks, Steve. Uh, Great talk, and I always learn
0: a lot. And uh, just a quick comment um, or a question. I guess, you know, LPL is this different populations of different cells and and plasma cells, lymphoplasmacytic cells. You know, we know ibrutinib is not very effective in myeloma and these plasma cell compartments. So I guess uh, my question is, do you see differences in the CXCR4 mutated uh, uh, Waldenstroms in terms of different uh, percentages of these populations? And, and you know, if we can't eliminate this plasma cell population, potentially, how does that... Um, factor into the biology of the disease and potentially resistance to, to ibrutinib? Yeah, no, that you're, I think you've asked a lot of good questions in, in that statement. Um, first off, there is this LPL, which is not IgM secreting, and the vast majority of them actually do have the M88 mutation and can respond to ibrutinib or presumably perhaps other BTK inhibitors. Uh, so it, it is worth, when you have an LPL patient, even if they're not secreting IgM, You know, they could be IgG, IgA, or non-secretors, or light chain secretors, to to look for the mid-88 mutation. It'll also help you, in some ambiguous cases, to help separate it out from myeloma because uh, myeloma doesn't have the mid-88 mutation. So it's been a very good tool to help separate, you know, uh, patients out. Um, The CXCR4 problem is a little bit more complicated. You know, not every cell that has the mid-88 mutation actually has the CXCR4 mutation. It tends to be subclonal. And you can have frameshift as well as nonsense mutations, and these behave differently uh, in the setting of ibrutinib. And so as we're moving along here, we're, we're recognizing that the clonality of CXCR4 as well as whether you express the nonsense variant, which you know occurs in about half of all patients, and tends to be the virulent one, the one associated with hyperviscosity, that tends to behave uh, much differently than frameshift patients. So the ones we really worry about are high clonality CXCR4 and patients that have the nonsense variant.
1: At the back microphone.
2: Thank you very much. Excellent presentation. So two questions regarding the use of rituximab in Waldstrom's. So in the innovate trial, there, there was not an arm like on the same trial. There was not an arm with single agent uh, ibrutinib. So I was wondering, since in CLL didn't pan out, you know, the activity of uh, of the important rituximab we know is not that important. So uh, in your view, what is the role of rituximab with ibrutinib in, in uh, Waldström's? Is it just to uh, you know, decrease the disease burden by itself, or do you think it has a long-term impact on the disease per se? Uh, and another question is, what is the role? I know uh, for you know, what is the role of maintenance rituximab in Waldström? I know this is a series I believe published by your group, the, uh, Dr. Truman. Do you use it or? would you recommend it? Because I, I also think it's just the improvement on PFS as well. So thank
0: you. No, two awesome questions. Um, so uh, you may have noticed I used the word regulatory trial, <laughs> you know, when I was describing Innovate. And I think, you know, w- without question, the, you know, what was missing there was that third arm of Ibrutinib alone. And when we look at our Ibrutinib monotherapy data uh, from our um, both previously treated population and frontline population, Um, The response rates actually are very similar. Uh, Even the depth of response, very similar. So I don't think you need R. However, there is this one caveat. The people that have CXCR4 as well, um, they tend to have longer times to get to those major responses. And I was very impressed um, by the update that Christian Busky gave because instead of, you know, seven months, six to seven months to get to a major response with Ibrutinib alone, in the CXCR4 mutated patients, now it was three months. So you're able to get patients into a response sooner with the addition of Rituxan, but that, you know, would be something I would reserve for the patients that are double mutated. For single mutation, I don't think you need rituxin. You may be doing the patient a disservice because, you know, rituxin can actually affect IgA and IgG levels, suppress them, lead to hypogamma, sustained hypogamma globulinemia. If you don't need it, you don't need it. Your other question about maintenance Rituxin is a good one. We tend to use it. You know, this is based on um, a study that we did where we looked at the outcome of patients who got Rituxin-based therapy. We saw improvement in progression-free and overall survival with the addition of maintenance R. We do one infusion every three months for one to two years, but we check their IgG and IgA levels. We ask them if they're having sinus and bronchial infections, and so that's part of what we do to figure if we need to continue the, uh, or we can continue, maintenance R. One very important development, uh, Rick, is I believe we are going to see the Rummel prospective study with maintenance R being presented to ASH this year. This is a very, very important study where patients got Benda R, and they were then uh, randomized to either observation or R. And so um, I think this will be one of the highlights
1: at ASH. Why don't we move ahead for the cases? So we have two cases for Dr. Trion to comment on. So Mr. M is a 72-year-old man who's referred from neurology for evaluation of an IgM M spike at 2,500 milligrams per deciliter in the setting of peripheral neuropathy. EMG performed demonstrates a sensorimotor demyelinating and axonal process involving the lower extremities bilaterally. He reports numbness involving the soles of both feet, which does not interfere with ambulation. CBC is significant only for a hemoglobin of 11.8. So, what additional evaluation do you recommend?
0: So, this is a very interesting case. Um, you know, it's important to um, to be mindful that now somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of our cases are patients that are presenting with IgM-related uh, neuropathy. Um, the, um, the neuropathy associated with amyloidosis is much less common. In fact, it's quite rare. So, most of the cases are going to be demyelinating. That you'll see. It's also important to keep in mind that we also do see small fiber neuropathy as well. So the EMG becomes very, very critical. Um, We, um, you know, what we would want to see is if there is a demyelinating pattern. That would speak to the fact that this is somebody who probably has uh, an anti-MAG or anti-myelin-associated glycoprotein uh, antibody that's targeting the myelin sheath. And this person may very well have long-standing demyelination, so it would be nice to know how long he has had um, the, uh, the, the demyelinating process going on. Because once you strip down the nerve, it then dies, and that's when we see axonal death. Now, axonal death can also occur if you have amyloid. So if I was doing a, a workup here for this patient, I'd want to know how long the neuropathy has been going on. And I might even consider doing a um, you know, a fat pad biopsy just to exclude um, uh, you know, the possibility of amyloid. Although here, I think that's quite remote. I think the more likely scenario is that he has truly an IgM demyelinating neuropathy. I would also check for anti-MAG antibody, um, anti-GM1 antibodies, which tend to be the more common demyelinating antibodies. You can test for those um, clinically. You can send those out. It's a very common laboratory test. And that would at least give us some uh, sense of what the underlying um, pathogenesis is. Uh, In people that have no EMG findings and uh, are complaining of uh, fairly sporadic neuropathy also consider small-fiber neuropathy, and the management for that is quite different.
1: So, Steve, would you comment on the axonal versus the demyelinating nature of the neuropathy and the EMG findings? If we do see axonal... Um, drop-off, do we need to be concerned about other processes, or can we attribute that to the demyelination and the death of the axon?
0: So if you saw in an EMG study pure axonal degeneration, I would worry about amyloid. Um, If you see this kind of pattern where you see demyelination along with axonal death uh, degeneration, more likely the scenario here is that this person has had long-standing demyelinating neuropathy, and that axonal death, you know, has uh, occurred. So seeing the demyelinating component to this um, is um, more indicative of an IgM demyelinating neuropathy. The management is very different, so that's why getting this right from the beginning is uh, very important, and I would, you know, encourage you always get EMG studies. Um, Many times these aren't done in advance, you know, of the patient being seen. But try to get a good EMG study done so you have at least some bearing as to what's going on.
1: And would you comment, are there uh, antineuronal antibodies identified that fit with small motor, uh, small fiber motor neuropathy?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, none that we can reliably, um, you know, uh, you know do, do much with at this point in time. Yeah.
1: So would a MAG antibody rule out if that was sort of involved, a small...
0: Well, if you if you get the, you should always get the mag and GM1 antibodies. Um, if you if those are positive, you have to look at the titer. You know, you can have weakly positive titers, but strong you know titers will um, help make a very strong case for this being an IgM demyelinating neuropathy and not small fiber.
1: And what proportion of anti-IGM or anti-neuronal IgM-associated neuropathies do we not find anti-myelin-associated glycoprotein or anti-sulfatide or anti-ganglioside antibodies in?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Rick. You know, we've done we did a series that we uh, presented at ASCO 2010, uh, and in fact, only 25% of all the demyelinating neuropathy determined by IgM did we pick up a uh, anti-neuronal antibody. So if you don't see it, don't exclude uh, the diagnosis. Um, I think it's, a, it's all about pattern recognition. Uh, these are, tend to be symmetrical. They always start in the toes or soles. They tend to ascend upward. Somewhere between the sock line and the uh, knee, they skip and then involve the fingertips. Uh, that's a classical uh, sensory motor demyelinating uh, process. And um, you, know, you have to check for the antibodies uh, as part of your workup. Uh, but in the absence of detecting them, you know, go with pattern recognition and go with the fact that the EMG study is showing a demyelinating pattern.
1: And I guess that's very dependent upon how
0: high your socks are. Depends uh, exactly. But you know, this is this is a great case because it's showing us how we need to be also neurologists, good neurologists. You know, beyond just our hematological and oncological skill sets. Um, and it is good to involve you know somebody at your institution or seek out the expertise. Because if you don't treat these patients, um, you know, uh, correctly and timely, uh, they will become debilitated. You know, we have data that shows that, you know, somewhere 8 to 10 years after this starts, uh, the patients will become debilitated. And we have ways of actually uh, improving their outcome with um, modern, modern therapeutics.
1: So what would you use as the indications for treatment initiation in this patient?
0: This could very well be the harder of the two questions that you pose because, you know, uh, this is where a clinical skill set is important. Now, you're indicating here that he doesn't have any interference with ambulation, and that's a good thing. Um, But the pace of the neuropathy would be something I would take into account. If the patient came and said to you, you know, at at a three-month or six-month interval that the uh, neuropathy has further progressed um, involving now, you know, more areas that you know there's, um, you know, sensory deficits or sensor motor deficits. You'd want to start treatment. You don't want to wait until this becomes um, debilitating. Um, on the other hand, there are patients who have mild neuropathy and they see, you know, minor changes over um, years. And so, being able to tease that out uh, is important in the treatment decision making.
1: And then how would you treat this patient when they did require treatment?
0: All right. Well, this one, uh, this one actually might have become easier. You know, if, we had given, if you had given me this, you know, even a couple of years ago, this would have been a very difficult, you know, question to answer. We've relied mainly on rituximab as a single agent, but this has actually not produced good results. Um, you know, the majority of patients will continue to show, um, you know, progression of their neuropathy. You know, to this we've added uh, maintenance when we've seen some improvement, although you'll never get reversal of this neuropathy in the vast majority of cases. Uh, more recently, particularly for the moderate and severe um, neuropathy patients, we'll combine either bendamostine or now ibrutinib. Uh, we've seen very good activity with ibrutinib, even salvaging those patients whose neuropathy has progressed on uh, rituxan alone. Um, and um, so I think that, you know, when you're looking at these patients, assess the gravity of their neuropathy, the pace of their neuropathy, consider combination therapy with either bendamustine or ibrutinib. And if they had already received uh, rituximab, think about ibrutinib as a good salvage for these patients.
1: All right. Any questions about that case before we move on to the second case?
0: And also other BTK inhibitors, because I I really do believe our field is going to be blessed with more BTK inhibitors.
1: All right, so case number two. Uh, Mrs. T is a 62-year-old woman who presents for consultation, having been diagnosed with Waldenstrom's four weeks earlier. She had presented with a hemoglobin of 9.8 grams per deciliter, platelets of 100,000, and an IgM of 4,300. She reports no other symptomatology any additional evaluation that you would want at this time?
0: Yeah, I'm presuming that Rick Furman has seen this patient. You've done a great, you know, history on this uh, individual. You've gone through the thorough review of systems. The only thing else that I'd be interested in um, in knowing is um, if there's any CT findings for this individual. So do get, you know, uh, chest, abdomen, pelvis. You know, once in a while you'll see um, either bulky nodes that maybe not have been appreciated uh, peripherally or you may see extramedullary disease that you may become concerned about. Or, in many cases, we also have picked up secondary um, malignant events, um, you know, which commonly occur with Waldenstrom patients. Okay, so
1: bone marrow biopsy for diagnostic purposes.
0: Do you always, always do
1: uh, next-generation sequencing, or do you specifically do myd 8 and CXCR4 sequencing?
0: Yeah, so this individual should get a bone marrow biopsy um, because central to the Waldenstrom, I, I think when you said diagnosed with Waldenstroms, I presume I a, a bone a bone marrow biopsy had been done. Um, but you need that in order to be able to make the definitive diagnosis. And I do think the um, if you can get mid-88 and CXCR4 testing done, I think it's appropriate at this stage. It will help you also prognostically. Patients who have... Mid-88 mutated disease, you know, do better than those that have mid-88 wild-type disease. They show, you know, better survival. Um, So I think you'll have some good prognostic information. You'll also be able to anticipate therapy when the patient becomes symptomatic. Both mid-88 and CXCR4, as you saw from the algorithms that we presented, can be very important in that regard.
1: Do you ever obtain antineuronal antibody panels in an asymptomatic patient? Is there any predictive value?
0: No, no. I mean, I, I would go, you know, I'd be guided by symptoms. There are people like this that you're going to diagnose, and, you know, they'll come to you six months, a year, two years later with neuropathy. But, um, I, I, you know, you would have done nothing different because here, too, you're going to gauge the severity and pace of the neuropathy in terms of your treatment decision-making.
1: Any role for bone densitometry or other... Uh...
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in the absence of really having a reason for doing it, we wouldn't. I mean, this isn't myeloma. Very, 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 very rarely are you going to see any skeletal-related events. Um, I probably can count on one or two hands how many we've seen, you know, in 20 years' time. But they can occur. Um, and so if you're, if you're guided for some reason to thinking that somebody may have had a skeletal-related event, fair game. But otherwise, uh, it's not part of the routine screening.
1: What additional? What would be the indications for treatment initiation in this patient?
0: Yeah, so this uh, patient um, has a hemoglobin of nine point eight. So when we look at reasons for starting therapy, they can include, you know, being symptomatic from uh, anemia. So hemoglobin of less than ten is on the, um, you know, in our guidelines, platelet count of hundred thousand or less. Uh, IGM itself has not been part of the guidelines, although we have data now suggesting that even if the patient is asymptomatic, um, an IGM level of above six thousand puts that patient at high risk. So, one could consider initiating therapy um, at that point in time. Um, based on the uh, WM consensus guidelines, this patient looks like they would be, you know, meeting guidelines for therapy. Although I think it's a little bit of a gray area sometimes. Because, you know, if the, the, very well this patient could be um, anemic like this but not be symptomatic. So uh, we would probably want to know if she's fatigued, if she's given up things like going to the gym or not doing her runs. I mean, sometimes you have to flush out somebody being symptomatic by asking those questions. So, we have so she answers? reports
1: no other symptomatology. Bone marrow biopsy confirms Waldenstrom's mm-hmm. anemia. Uh, CXCR4 and myd testing was not performed. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you treat this patient if she actually um, were to go on to treatment because of a rise in the IgM?
0: So one more thing we'd want to do for this patient um, as part of our uh, diagnostic workup with what you've said is um, do we know how much involvement of the bone marrow um,
1: So the bone marrow is currently involved with about um, 50%. 50%. With a cellularity of about uh, 80%. Yeah.
0: So this is no surprise, given the fact that the patient is both anemic and thrombocytopenic, that they have a significant uh, burden. Um, We probably would want to tease out the anemia just a little bit more um, by asking if we have any iron levels. Is the patient iron deficient? Because you're going to think about that hepcidin story that I presented to you earlier. And why I say that is that, you know, sometimes if somebody is, you know, relatively asymptomatic and they're anemic, you can probably give them some intravenous iron and goose up that hemoglobin. And we've been able to do this in a number of patients because of, uh, you know, overcoming that hepcidin mechanism. So it would be something I would be, you know, just wanting to make sure and also make sure the patient doesn't have cold agglutinins, um, or warm antibodies to account for the um, uh, anemia, so this is just general thinking in terms of how you 'd want to manage somebody who's presenting with anemia with Waldenstrom because there could be multiple mechanisms accounting for their, um, you know, for their anemia. Now you're, so assuming the patient is having some um, compromise because of the anemia here, you know in terms of offering therapy, first thing of course we always think about is clinical trials. <laughs> You know, uh, talking to your um, you know your colleagues and making sure going on clinicaltrials.gov because, again, it's a fairly small population of patients and it's important for us to do trials and the trials today are actually very 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 innovative, so I think it is important to keep those in mind. Um, but other than that, you know, I would really want to know what somebody's mid88 status is um, before embarking on therapy it would help me with tr- treatment decision making. I'd want to know about the CT scans to see if we have to be concerned about bulky adenopathy. And based on the algorithm, if they have the ME88 mutation, we would probably consider um, Ibrutinib-based therapy, or hopefully soon in the near future, other BTK inhibitor-based therapies. Um, If they were also CXCR4 mutated, we might add uh, Rituximab as well, um, just to help um, make the um, response uh, occur even sooner. And if they had bulky disease, then I would consider bendamustine based therapy.
1: And what about if the patient had cardiac dysfunction?
0: Well, we'd want to know what the dysfunction really entailed. If this is somebody who has uh, chronic AFib and is on um, anticoagulant, um, we'd want to know if this is somebody who's had paroxysmal um, atrial fibrillation in the past. That would be really helpful in terms of gauging so we're the relative So talking about a patient risk. who's
1: got a dilated left atrium? And it's had a history of paroxysmal AFib. Who's currently in normal sinus rhythm, and not on anticoagulation. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so here, here, you know, you're you're painting a very good picture for somebody going into atrial fibrillation. I hope this wasn't selection bias for this particular presentation, <laughs> but if it was, it's totally fair game because this is the kind of decision making that we, you know, go through, you know, in terms of um, trying to figure out if um, a BTK inhibitor is appropriate for a patient like this. Now, we also have treated people on our clinical trials with this kind of scenario and have been able to medically manage them, and they've done well on a BTK inhibitor. Even people have had paroxysmal AFib in their past. So I think, you know, in somebody like this who's relatively young, and 62 these days is uh, young, you know, being able to avoid alkylators and being able to avoid a proteasome inhibitor that could potentially, you know, uh, create uh, neuropathy... Uh, would probably still sway me in favor of using a BTK inhibitor in this individual as my first choice. And I think if they develop atrial fibrillation and they've actually done very well on the drug, you try to medically manage the patient. And, in fact, in the vast majority of cases, we've been able to medically manage the patient successfully.
1: And does that mean getting them back in normal sinus and keeping them there or just dealing with uh, chronic AFib and anticoagulation?
0: And Rick here continues to tighten those screws. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> where, well, this is, again, why MDs are so important as part of the um, you know, factoring in how to care for patients uh, in these kind of scenarios because there will be a point where you know, you're going to look at the risk of this patient getting into trouble on a BTK inhibitor, and you're going to say, well, look, we should talk to the patient about other options. Um, but if somebody is, um, you know, in you've medically, you know, tried to suppress their arrhythmia, you have to put them on anticoagulation, I still think you can continue um, the BTK inhibitor, and we've done that successfully. We tend to use factor, you know, 10A inhibitors um, in preference to warfarin, um, but there's no contraindication to using warfarin.
1: All right. Any uh, questions from the audience? All right. With that, I'd like to thank Dr. Trion for a wonderful presentation. And I'd like to thank everyone for uh, their attendance. Have a good night.